Amen. Thank you, choir, so much for working so hard on that song. Even in the midst of them working on the Christmas musical, they've taken time to learn that as well. And it does perfectly set the scene and the stage for this Advent series uh, this year. Um, As Terry mentioned, uh, we were going to begin this morning in Isaiah chapter 40. You can go ahead and be taking your place there in God's Word. If you need a Bible, there's a a pew Bible provided there for you. And Isaiah chapter 40 begins on page 586. Uh, But this Advent season, it is my prayer that we would be able to truly behold our God. As we go through Isaiah 40 today, we will see the importance of seeing God for who He truly is. Um, Many of you may be like me. You didn't grow up in a church that talked about Advent. Uh, I didn't grow up in a church that talked about Advent. And when I began to hear about Advent... Uh, my impression was that Advent meant uh, candles, and candles are, are fine. There's nothing wrong with them, but that's not really the point. And so this year, um, if you do candles at home, that's, that's fantastic. We've done that as a family, as part of family worship uh, during this season. Um, but I, my goal in prayer is that we would be able to focus on, on the heart of Advent and what that means. Advent is a word that, that means coming. And so we think on our Lord's first Advent. That's what we normally think about at Christmas time is when He came to earth as a baby. But the message of Advent is that because he came once, he will come again. And so this Advent season, we're going to take time to think about both comings, his first coming as a baby there in Bethlehem, and also the future of return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we will be able to truly behold our God this Advent. Um, would you, uh, if you found your place in God's Word, Isaiah chapter 40, If you're able and willing in body or in spirit, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to make our way through Isaiah chapter 40, the entire chapter this morning, but I'm only going to read verses 1 through 11 at this time. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the Word of God for the people of God. So thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
God in heaven, we pray this morning that we would truly behold you, that we would see your glory and that we wouldn't make just a a passing glance, but that we would fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We would set aside all distractions and that we would truly behold our King. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah chapter 40 is a, a chapter of comfort for broken-hearted people. It serves as a new beginning in the book of Isaiah, and the beginning of Act 2, so to speak. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah overall have been doom and gloom. They're chapters of judgment and woe. Now you may be familiar with some passages in the first half of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, those are encouraging passages we normally think about this time of year, and we will look at those in the coming weeks. But overall, the first half of Isaiah has contained a lot of judgment, a lot of oracles or sermons of woe. God, through his prophet, has announced judgment. He's announced woe to Judah and woe to Israel and woe to their neighbors. By my count, starting with Isaiah chapter 13, there's at least 20 chapters that are woe and judgment, woe and judgment. And then Isaiah pauses the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 36. And uh, he begins to give us a historical update as to how all of this was working itself out there in the nation of Judah. So in Isaiah chapters 36 and 39, we see King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah uh, does well for a while. He does the right thing. He calls on the name of the Lord and Yahweh delivers his people. But then we also hear judgment coming in those same chapters. Keep your Bibles open. If you'll look up there just a few verses ahead where we are in chapter 40, look in chapter 39, verse, starting in verse 5. And we're going to hear those words of judgment to Hezekiah and to Judah. They're not on the screen, so take a look in your Bible there. Isaiah chapter 39, verses 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah announces that the day is coming when Judah will be led into exile. The people will be led away from their homes, taken into captivity. What a depressing message to hear. That's not what God's people wanted to hear. After so many chapters of judgment and woe, which they deserved to be sure, but after so many chapters of judgment and woe, our God brings comfort in chapter 40. But as we're going to see, these words from Isaiah chapter 40 are so grand and so glorious that while they had application to them there in that century in Isaiah's day, uh, these promises transcend time and they apply to all of God's people for the ages. So this morning, I pray that we will behold our God who comforts. Chapter 40 can be divided into two big parts. So there's two big ideas that I want us to see from this chapter, two points to the sermon. Verses 1 through 11 teach us that God will comfort his people. God will comfort his people. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage with the command, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The command given to Isaiah in that day and to all uh, preachers in every day since then is this. Comfort. Speak comfort to the people of God. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
It literally means speak to the heart of. Like a lover speaking to the heart of, uh, speaking and wooing his beloved, that's what Isaiah is to do. Well, what is Isaiah's message of comfort? Well, before I tell you what it is, I want to tell you what it's not. You know, I like to give you a few options of what it's not. So here's what Isaiah doesn't say. He doesn't say, listen, Judah, I know that you're going through a rough patch. So let me tell you a secret. Here's a book, and it's called The Power of Positive Thinking. That's not what Isaiah does. Isaiah doesn't say, hey, guys, I know things are bad right now. You've got enemies all around you. So here's, here's a different book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Isaiah doesn't go that path either. Isaiah doesn't say, Jerusalem, I know you feel guilty right now, but, but trust me, everything's actually okay. I'm okay, and you're okay. Isaiah says none of that. In case you don't recognize it, those are titles of some of the most influential self-help books in the 20th century. But Isaiah uh, doesn't offer ideas like this because he knows that their help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So Isaiah gives three things in verse 2 that are to be a comfort to God's people. Look there in verse 2. Here's Isaiah's message of comfort. That her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that's good news. That's a word of comfort. Isaiah knows that the day is coming when the people are going to feel the weight of their sins. They're going to feel the effects of their iniquity so strongly because they're going to be carried away from their homes. They're going to be captives in a foreign land. And the weight of their sins will be so great that they will feel crushed. And Isaiah says, here's comfort. God says that your battle is over. The warfare has ended. Your sins are forgiven. Your iniquity has been pardoned. And Judah has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Now, that third phrase sounds a bit strange to us, but the overall idea seems to be that God has provided sufficient atonement for Judah's sins. As great as their sins are, God has provided far and enough, far and above all that they need to cover their sins in Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, Isaiah and his original audience, they didn't understand everything about the cross in their day. Although if you look at Isaiah 53, you understand that Isaiah understood a whole lot. They didn't understand everything that we understand from this side of the cross. But I absolutely think that this is a reference to the work of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible is clear that our sins can only be atoned for. Our account can only be settled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah is announcing comfort to the people of God due to the work of God on their behalf. They may have felt like their sins were so great that their debt was so insurmountable that there was no hope that they could ever be made right, that they could ever be cleansed. But God's word of comfort is this. The battle is over. Your sins are forgiven. And there is abundant grace in Jesus Christ. Where your sins abound... God's grace abounds more. I really like the way uh, Andy Davis, a pastor in North Carolina, he describes the relationship between his sin and God's grace. He says that some days our sin is like a match. Other days our sin is like a torch. Other days our sin is even greater. It's like a bonfire on the beach. Some days our sin is like a burning building. But every day God's grace is like the Pacific Ocean. It can handle it all. 
God's grace is big enough. It's far greater. It's far stronger. It's far mightier than all of my sin. That's a word of comfort. So does this bring you comfort this morning? If not, why not? Could it be that there's a time that you have never uh, repented of your sins and trusted Christ as Savior? I would urge you, today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Behold our God who comforts. This is the message of Isaiah chapter 40. And now God adds three voices to this opening declaration of comfort. We have three sets of three verses, each set adding a voice to describe the work of God. Look at verses 3 through 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I trust that many of you recognize these verses. All four Gospels apply these verses to the ministry of John the Baptist. When a king would visit a region in Isaiah's day, uh, they would often send out a herald to go before him to announce that the king was coming. And sometimes uh, they would even send out engineers to improve the roads, to level the roads, to bring up the low places and to bring down the high places and to make a smooth path for the king's arrival. What they did literally, John the Baptist did metaphorically in his ministry. John preached a message of repentance, making ready for the Lord a people prepared. John preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preached and he preached until one day John saw someone coming through the crowd whom the Holy Spirit made clear to him this This is the one that you're talking about. And John declared, behold, your God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. So the voice of this first three verse stanza declares that there will certainly come a day when the gloom of Jerusalem will be replaced by the glory of the Lord. And this appearing, this coming, this advent of the Lord's glory is not dependent on on who's on the throne or who's in the White House, this will surely come to pass because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. What a message of comfort. But there's a second voice, a second stanza in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. Well, who is this voice? We're not told, but it seems like it must be God. And Isaiah says, well, what's the message, God? What am I supposed to say? He says, and I said, what shall I cry? You see, Isaiah is a faithful prophet. He's not going to speak anything that the Lord hasn't told him to say. As Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 1, no prophecy originates from man. It comes from God who moves along his prophets. And so Isaiah wants to know the message. What's the message? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. That's not the message that church gurus tell us, church growth gurus tell us to proclaim. What's your message, Isaiah? You're all going to die. That's Isaiah's message. He says, tell them that they're going to die. That's the word from the Lord. All flesh is like grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. 
You're going to bloom for a little while. You'll be strong and vigorous for years. You may win awards. You may be beautiful. You may have strength. But all of this is fading. All of this is fleeting. It will not last. What about verse 8? The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. So the God who comforts, the God who announces that our sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ, his words last. His glory will be revealed in Christ. The things that bring you sorrow in this life, they're temporary. The things that you seek comfort in outside of Christ, your fame and your money and your beauty, your work, your strength, these will all wither and fade and ultimately you will die. But God's word stands forever. God's promise to deliver his people is certain. His word is sure. It will never fade. God's glory will never fade. God's words of comfort will never fade. God's work of salvation through Christ will never fade. God's word stands forever. Behold your God. There's a third voice, a third stanza in verses 9 through 11. Because God's promised to deliver Jerusalem, to deliver his people, we are his people, because his promise is certain, they too are to lift up their voices, declaring the good news of God. Verses 9 and 10. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. What is the message of the people of God? What is the message that we're to declare to the nations? Behold your God. Not just glance at him. Not just a passing look. Not just gaze upon him for a moment and then you can take him or leave him. Fix your eyes. Fix your heart. Fix your attention upon him. Study him. Consider him. Behold your God. Well, who is he? What is he going to do? Look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The same God who has announced judgment in all these chapters of Isaiah, he will comfort his people. The God who rules with might and power is also gentle. Is this not the heart of Jesus that we read in Matthew chapter 11? Christ himself says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Christ is the good shepherd who comforts his people. Behold your God. See him for who he really is. The message of Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 11 is that God will indeed comfort his people. But God doesn't stop there. He knows that many people will find the good news hard to believe. Many people will say, can God really do that? Can he really do all that he says he can do? After all, Judah is about to be exiled. And if God couldn't stop that, then how do I know that he can comfort me? How do I know that God will keep his promises? Can God really comfort me after all? 
Well, the second part of Isaiah chapter 40, the second uh, big idea in this sermon, the second point in this sermon is that God really is able to comfort his people. God is able to comfort his people, verses 12 through 31. We begin at verses 12 through 14. Look there. As Terry mentioned earlier, these are rhetorical questions that God, through the prophet Isaiah, asks. Each one of them designed to put us in our place, to remind us of how big God is and how small we are, and to assure us that he is absolutely able to do all that he says he can do. Verse 12, you heard the choir sing it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Can you measure the amount of water in the Pacific Ocean? I don't mean can scientists take a guess. I mean, can you personally? Can you do that? What about Lake Oconee? Is that any better? Okay, how about the water in your bathtub? Can you measure the amount of water in your bathtub? How, how long will it take you? How many tools will it take you? God can measure all the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. Now remember that God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. But God is higher and greater, altogether different than us. And so he speaks to us in terms that we can understand. All throughout the Bible, God speaks to us as if he has uh, a, human, a human body. He uses human language to help us understand him. That's called an anthropomorphism. God uses the language of humanity to describe himself so that we can understand him uh, more clearly. So if God had a hand, he could measure all the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. God could measure the entire universe in the span of his hand, the distance between his thumb and his pinky. God could measure it all. God's big enough to do all of that. We humans, even with all the great achievements of science, all that science has to offer, when it comes to hills and mountains, we're just guessing. We're guessing about their size. We're guessing about how much they weigh. But God can take them all and weigh them all in a balance. God knows their every detail. If God's big enough, strong enough to do that, don't you think he's able to keep his promises to you? Absolutely he is. You say, yeah, when you put it like that, I mean, I, I guess he is, but sometimes I don't like the way he does it. If I'm just being honest, I, I don't like the way God operates sometimes. I wish he would do things differently. Well, look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Of what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? You see, when God created the heavens and the earth, he didn't send out bids to various contractors to get the best person for the job. It's all right. You can't laugh. I know I don't always pause, but it's okay to laugh. When, when God hung the stars in space, he didn't call the local weather station and ask them if they liked the pattern. And when God declared before the foundations of the earth that the Son of Man must be crucified, that he must be beaten, that he must be handed over to the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees, and that he would be crucified and raised again on the third day, God didn't ask our opinion. He said, this is the way it will be. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Sometimes we don't like that. 
First Corinthians chapter one reminds us that sometimes the world scoffs at the plan of God. If we're honest, sometimes we do, too. First Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our input on how to accomplish redemption or how to manage the affairs of the world. We continue in the verse, Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? We purport to be a nation concerned with justice. But the only problem is that we've become a society that has declared that God's ways are unjust. Who has taught God the path of justice? Who has taught him knowledge? No one. In our last series, the bookends of the Bible, we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And we saw in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, God's creation of the new heaven and the new earth. If God is able to do that, is he not able to keep his promises to bring us comfort? Absolutely, he is. Behold your God. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Some of you have animals you have to care for, uh, whether it's taking a a dog bowl or a a bowl of water to a, a small animal or taking a bucket of water to livestock. If one drop of water falls out of the bucket, do you stop everything you're doing and just start crying and weeping and trying to get that one drop of water back in the bucket? No, that would be foolish. The nations are like a drop in the bucket to our God. What about the dust on the scales? I know many of us are scared to step back on the scales this week after Thanksgiving. But whenever you become brave enough to step back on the scales, are you going to dust it off before you get on? Is the weight of that dust going to make a difference? No. God says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're like the dust on the scales. Verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon in that day was known for its fine forest, all of its uh, cedar and its timber. And if you could take all of the timber in Lebanon and build a fire to sacrifice, and if you could take all the animals found in Lebanon and you could make the biggest sacrifice humanly possible, it means nothing to God. Remember how our sins can only be atoned for through Jesus Christ. Not all of the burnt offerings the world has to offer. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Less than nothing. That's, that's pretty low. The history of the world is just one nation rising and falling after another. We think of the great empires we read about in the scriptures and we think about the 
the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and the Empire of the United Kingdom and the Empire of the United States, there will come a day when they will all pass away. Oceans rise and empires fall. And if the nations are nothing to God, why do we fear them? Why do we lose sleep over the next move of the nations? Let me be more blunt. If China is accounted by God as less than nothing, and I don't mean the souls of the people who live there, but politically, as a geopolitical threat to our nation, if God counts that nation or any nation as less than nothing, why do we lose sleep over what they're going to do? God is sovereign over it all. Perhaps we as believers ought to spend more time focusing our attention on our great God and a little less time trembling at one more nation rising and falling. Because you see, the nations cannot stop God's plan of redemption. And the nations cannot accomplish God's plan of redemption. So these questions in verses 12 through 14 emphasize God's significance. Verses 15 through 17, we've just finished, emphasize everything else's insignificance. Everything else is insignificant compared to our God. But you know, we're human. We're just like our father and mother, Adam and Eve. And so sometimes we prioritize the insignificant over the significant. We often turn to idols for things that really don't matter God is our great redeemer, and yet so often we focus our attention on little idols that can do nothing like our God. That's what we read about here in verses 18 through 20. Starting in verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Many times in the book of Isaiah, he scoffs at the foolishness of idolatry. One of my favorites is in chapter 44, when Isaiah speaks of this poor person who has, uh, doesn't have the money or the ability to get a gold idol. And so he uh, finds timber And he takes half of the timber and uses it to cook with and to fuel his stove and everything. And then the other half of it, he makes an idol out of. And it's all from the same piece of wood. How foolish is idolatry. But do we turn to idols today? Maybe not the ones made out of wood or silver or gold. But we do turn to the insignificant things and value them over the truly significant one. Do we turn to these for our comfort and our value and our worth and our identity? Absolutely we do. We idolize the insignificant rather than worshiping the only significant, true, and living God. To drive the point home further, Isaiah asks more rhetorical questions. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Isaiah points back to their theology, what they know to be true about God. He says, you know these things. You already understand. You must remember. Verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. 
who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. As terrifying as rulers and dictators can sometimes be, the Bible is clear that God will bring them to nothing. He will make the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Make no mistake, God is actively involved in the affairs of men. That's not what famous deists like Thomas Jefferson would have believed. They would have said, well, God made everything, but then he removed himself and he just set everything on its own course. And he's not actively involved in our day-to-day life. But the one who said that, God brought him to nothing. God makes princes nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What did we see back in verses 6 through 8? They're like grass. They fade. But God doesn't. We keep going in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's referring to stars here. When you look up into the sky and you see the stars at night, we can't even count all of the stars. We have to use telescopes to be able to see them. We can't even see many of them with our naked eye. But God created them. He sees them. He counts them. He controls them. And he does not lose a single one of them. How then could Judah compare the greatness of their enemies to the greatness of this God? The great Assyria, the great Babylon, as great as these kingdoms were in their day, they are nothing compared to Almighty God. And the same is true for my enemies and your enemies, my concerns and your concerns, the things that keep us awake at night, the things that keep our attention, crime, inflation, COVID, whatever variant there is this week. All of these things catch our attention, yet God is far greater. Behold our God. All of these things pale in comparison to His might and his greatness. We've seen that God will comfort his people. And if you have any doubt, God has demonstrated that he is able to comfort his people. But as Isaiah closes out the chapter, he applies his message here in verses 27 through 31. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Sometimes we're so focused on ourselves and not on God, that we sink into the same despair that Israel was in, the same despondency of Judah. Apparently, they were acting as if God had forgotten about them altogether. And we may not say it out loud, but sometimes down in the deep recesses of our heart, we feel the same way. We ask, has God forgotten about me? Is God tired of me? Is he tired of me needing help again this week with the same thing that I needed help with last week? Does God really even like me? We ask even harder questions. Why hasn't God answered my prayer? Why did God take my spouse? Why is my child in rebellion against God? Why doesn't God take away the pain that I'm suffering? Sometimes these questions 
are the constant refrains of our souls. Now hear me carefully. I'm not minimizing what you're going through. I know a little bit of what some of you are going through. I don't pretend to even begin to understand everything that you're all going through. Some of you are walking through very deep valleys and the pain is real and the sorrow is real. So I'm not telling you to just pretend like everything's okay. I'm encouraging you that even in the midst of great sorrow, lift your eyes to the maker of heaven and earth. Behold your God. See him for who he is. Be reminded of his strength and his power and be encouraged. He will comfort you. How does God do this? How did he comfort an old man named Simeon? You remember in Luke chapter 2, Luke tells us about a man named Simeon who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What a beautiful phrase. He was waiting for the comfort, the consolation that Isaiah spoke about here. And how did God comfort Simeon? By letting him behold his God. Simeon was standing in the temple one day and a a man and a woman came in with their child for the purification offering. And God's spirit spoke to Simeon and said, this is the one. This is the comfort of Israel. This is Christ the King. And this Advent season, as we are longing, we're waiting for the comfort of God. We need to be reminded of what we already know. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the eternal God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Again, God points us back to our knowledge of him, our theology. Do you know him? Do you know him through his word? You see, our God does not faint or grow weary. Verses 29 and 30, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted. Isaiah here, he's giving us the best of the best. He's giving us the strongest of the strong, the young men, the athletes, the trained soldiers, the strong ones. Even they get tired. Even they grow weary. But God doesn't grow weary. God never faints. He has abundant strength and he's ready to strengthen you, to comfort you. Verse 31, that familiar verse, they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Some translations say those who wait upon the Lord. Others say those who hope in the Lord. We hold those two ideas together. Because waiting doesn't mean idly standing by doing nothing. And hoping in the Lord doesn't mean that we just have these hopeful feelings that are not grounded in reality. We're to fix our attentions, our minds, our hearts on who God is. While we wait on the Lord, when we behold Him, when we see our God, we will renew our strength. The word renew means to exchange. We're exchanging our weakness for God's strength. God has unending, never failing strength and power. When we wait on him, when we hope on him, when we behold our God as he is, he gives us strength for the day and bright hope for tomorrow. Today, will you behold your God? I pray you will. Let's go to God in prayer. God in heaven, we come to you.
thanking you for the vision of your glory through your word. We pray that each of us here would see you as you really are, draw the lost to yourself, encourage the saved, that we would all be more faithful for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you sought the Lord while he may be found? Have you found comfort in the redemption of God? If not, I would love to talk to you about faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have trusted Christ, be reminded of the glorious good news of the gospel. It's not something we just believe one time in the past. It's something we cling to day by day by day. Would you sing our hymn of response?